Hello and welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. As you probably know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. The following recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the second episode of the i3 Insights podcast. Today we have two very interesting uh, guests. We have Harry Chamey and Sahil Kohar. They are co-founders of Clover, a Australian-based robo-advisor that's offering a variety of innovative solutions to uh, people who might not otherwise be able to invest in traditional investment products. So, Harry and Sahil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having us, Daniel. Thank you. Well, I guess a good place to start is finding out a little bit more about you and how you came to be at Clover and where the idea for Clover came from. Sure, so perhaps I'll feel that one. I have a background both across uh, retail and institutional advice. Uh, so I actually started off about 20 years ago as a power planner with the then KPMG Financial Services. It was subsequently sold. Um, but um, I spent about 10 years in wealth management, predominantly dealing with uh, two sorts of clients. I dealt with um, very, very high net worth clients whose advice was really structured around um, tax-based advice and, and um, portfolios that were essentially uh, created for them, bespoke portfolios. And then I dealt with other clients in, in other roles that were of more modest means, and these were clients that often would struggle to meet their financial goals because they started the journey, the advice journey, too late. Um, and, and that always stuck with me even as I transitioned across to an institutional role, which is where I met my co-founder, Sahil Kora, uh, when I joined Mercer in 2007. And it certainly was, was um, I guess, uh, it was very interesting to see that the different, those two different worlds. I'd come from a retail world, and I was now very much in the institutional world, providing advice to large client superannuation funds, endowments, and the like. And to see the differences in the total cost structures between the two worlds, um, which I felt was, was um, interesting insofar as retail clients were clearly paying uh, substantially higher fees than institutional clients. Scale notwithstanding, I felt that there were some issues that, that could be overcome to bring some of those costs, benefits that the institutional clients, um, I guess, benefited from and retail clients couldn't gain access to. So I guess that the journey for Clover was probably, um, I guess, conceived even back then, in 2007, 2008, uh, as I had already by that stage uh, become quite adhered to the idea of low-cost passive investing. I was, on my own personal account, using exchange-traded funds. I had already started to recommend them to clients with uh, ETFs, having really only arrived in Australia in 2003, uh, some 10 years after they were first launched on the NYSE. So the whole concept, I guess, of robo-advice, in a nutshell, if you want a definition of robo-advice, it's the uh, provision of financial advice and or investment management services 
online with uh, little to no human involvement uh, with the result and investment recommendations effectively based on mathematical rules or algorithms. Um, and by doing that, the idea is that we open up advice and investment management services to a whole new cohort of investors and potentially a whole new generation of investors who ideally start the journey sooner. Um, one of the things that has always concerned me is that Australians simply start engaging with their finances and their financial health way too late. If you're leaving it till your mid-40s, which tends to be when most Australians first engage truly with their superannuation funds, you've left two decades on the table. Um, and, and by engaging earlier, we hope that Australians will effectively be in a far better position when they truly start engaging with their, their retirement thinking at the age of, you know, in their mid-40s, um, and therefore be better placed for a comfortable retirement. Sahil, what's your story? So, uh, prior to Clover, I've um, had pretty much spent um, all my time on the institutional world. Um, I started my career as an actuarial analyst, uh, consulting to uh, superannuation funds on the defined benefit um, liabilities, uh, pension valuations, um, and from there I moved into uh, investment consulting at Mercer. That's where uh, I worked with Harry and advising large superannuation funds and insurance companies uh, on matters such as uh, portfolio construction, um, asset class research, and uh, manager selection. And as uh, so if you grow through your career, um, you start thinking about the bigger picture and uh, the the impact your day-to-day -day activities have within the industry and beyond. Um, and in the for the first five to seven years of my career, I didn't really pay much attention to sort of the retail financial world, so to speak, uh, or something which just sort of happens on the side. But um, as you gain more experience uh, and a better understanding, I started noticing that uh, in the institutional world, we have a lot of very smart people that are doing a some really good work in the world of investments using really strong academic rigor and having the best of the intentions in creating uh, some really good products. By the time they get to the retail end, a lot of times layers of fees get stacked and the same product which is available to institutional investors for, for the sake of example, let's say uh, 50 basis points, um, you know, is, is three times more expensive. Um, and we all know the impact of fees on investments um, over the longer term. And in today's day and age, there's absolutely no reason for that to be happening. Maybe perhaps two decades ago when administration platforms with um, heavy admin burden were required, a lot of paper pushing, um, you know, perhaps those distribution platforms are a place. But in today's day and age, when digital distribution effectively can provide the same product to the end user with very little cost and much greater transparency. Um, you know, there's no reason for it to not, not to be happening in Australia. It um, started happening globally, especially in the US, you know, about four to five years ago before we launched Clover. So really bringing that institutional quality asset management and portfolio construction direct to the end user uh, in a much more transparent, much more accessible and at a significantly lower cost is, uh, uh, you know, sort of what drives me uh, on a day-to-day -day basis in, in building Clover. So it sounds like you both came to this realization that uh, there were a lot of inefficiencies in the way that 
financial advice and investment products were distributed. And by inefficiencies, I mean there's a lot of people clipping the ticket on the way through. And clearly you thought there had to be a better way to do this. That's still quite different to taking the leap of uh, leaving steady employment with a large well-known firm and going out on your own doing something that's quite new in Australia or that had been done overseas. What sort of prompted you to finally take that, that leap and, and how did you go about organising yourselves to do it? Well, look, we just, I guess, we all have always been cognizant of developments uh, in the US. I've always felt that developments there sort of lead developments in Australia by four to five years. Um, and we certainly saw the move towards digital-based advice. It should be said, however, Daniel, that a lot of people, um, I guess, denigrate robo-advice in many ways. That term itself is a pejorative term. But the concept of, of digital-based advice has been around for a lot longer than many people realise. Many people don't realise that actually the, the founding robo-advisor in the US financial engines was um, established in 1996 as an institutional first product uh, dealing with corporate 401k plans and it was co-founded by none other than Nobel Prize winning economist no, um, William Sharp of CAPAM fame. So the concept that it's, it's, it's new from the left field is, is not fair. So we were very comfortable in taking, I guess, that leap of faith, as, as you so put it. By sort of 2014, we had kind of looked at the landscape. We knew that robo-advice would come to Australia, it had to come to Australia, because it was just going to be an obvious global trend. And I guess today we have been proven right. We certainly aren't the only robo-advice provider in Australia. There are others that have launched around the same time as us and, and subsequent to us. But the, the application of robo-advice is nascent in our view. It, it's just going to get so much bigger. And, uh, you know, when we look at, it, I guess, the stats, once again, we look to the U.S., A.T. Kearney, the consulting firm, did some numbers and, and has a robo-advice model uh, that, that they run, I think, about a year and a half, two years ago. They released figures that suggest that the total market for robo-advice by the year 2020 could be upwards of $2 trillion in the U.S., and that's just really uh, the start of, of the global movement towards um, online, algorithmic-based uh, robo-advice. Very similar motivations as, as Harry. I had actually completed my uh, MBA part-time while working in institutional investments, and uh, usually, um, as they joke, that uh, an MBA can be um, quite a bit of a catalyst for a change at times. Um, um, so I was sort of thinking as to um, in which direction I want to take my career um, in the world of institutional investments. Um, and uh, in big firms, um, you no doubt get to do some really exciting work, but at the same time, um, the sort of the, the institutional burden of uh, processes, uh, policies in, in big firms can be quite overwhelming. Um, and sort of the opportunity to build a really exciting product, um, getting it into the hands of the end user directly uh, and sort of watch it grow um, was just too tempting to uh, um, sort of not jump in. Uh, so when um, Harry was talking about sort of this idea at a very early stage about robo-advice, it instantly resonated and as Harry mentioned, it's it's nothing new really. I mean, in, in the institutional world, you know, you will have a team of analysts or portfolio managers. Um, 
building optimizers, using optimizers, using factorist models, and the, the same models essentially, when packaged together and the workflow is improved and uh, sort of automated to a degree, you essentially call it robo-advice. So we're using the exact same models and methodologies to build portfolios, what I did back in the institutional world. So there's nothing new in that sense. It's really using technology to improve the workflows significantly to increase the transparency uh, and also the, the key thing being the distribution. Uh, that's really the, the new bit. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, the, the opportunity to sort of do something which has a uh, really good impact and as uh, Harry's said plenty of times, uh, to do well while doing good, you know, that's too good an opportunity to not uh, take it seriously. One of the things that I remember in institutional investment, particularly in pension funds, was there's this very strong belief that um, a large part of the value add that pension funds, particularly industry funds, had was that they know their members, they're close to their membership, uh, whether it be because they represent members in a certain industry. And at the same time, there was always this struggle to increase engagement with members. Um, it's very hard sometimes to know a lot about members and most of the products that you were offering to a member were, were default products of sort of a one-size-fits-all investment. And one of the things that strikes me about robo-advice is that the technology allows you a greater degree of customization and a greater opportunity to learn about your members based on how they interact with, with your product offering. What things have you learned um, from your clients or, or how do you incorporate the interaction that you have with them in, in making your advice and your product better? Well, it, it's an interesting uh, question you pose. And as a starting point, I fully agree with you, Daniel, in terms of engagement. Um, you know, there, there's this psychological concept, I guess, called, called you know, present bias or hyperbolic discounting, as, as they technically call it, where it's really, really hard to think about your future self. And you tend to, to focus on the here and now and, I guess, what's salient. So it's been a problem. It's been a problem for the industry, the superannuation industry in Australia. Um, it effectively works because it is, it is a nudge, right? We have this compulsory... 9.5%, hopefully one day going to 12%. Um, but the idea is that you get funded even if you do nothing. And most Australians, therefore, don't do much until that point where superannuation is salient to them. It's actually a pot of money that means something material. And, and from what I've seen in my former life as a financial planner, it was a figure sort of north of what your car was worth and south of what your house was worth, but it was a, a decent figure and it probably occurred sometime in your mid-40s. Now that, that therefore, it's, it's the issue of how do you engage members and it's, it's terribly difficult for super funds. I get that, how do you engage the disengaged? And I guess that's where robo-advice, I feel, has a role to play. We certainly purposely built Clover to engage with those that currently weren't engaging with their finances. And that's fairly typically the younger cohort. You, you might call them Gen X or Gen Y or Millennials, but they are people in their 20s and 30s who haven't quite built up that superannuation nest egg, but they are interested in their finances. They're interested in getting into the housing market. They're interested in, in how they can advance themselves um, relative to, to their peers and, and also relative to the previous generations. 
we find that, that they engage very differently. And we know of their behaviors because, well, effectively, we, we are able to look at, at when they engage with us, how they engage with us, the pages they visit, the journey they take before they come to Clover. We have all that data. And what is truly, truly interesting, I guess, about um, Gen Y is the way they engage with their finances and the time they choose to do it. So when I was a financial planner, you made an appointment with a client, that client traveled potentially across town to a physical office where you were located and went through quite a, a, a boring, let's face it, unengaging process to ultimately come away with a very intimidating paper-based document. Now most of our clients essentially engage with us either after work, during the week, and it's fairly typically between the hours of about 7 and midnight, or on weekends. And that is the way Australians now want, want, to, want to engage with their, with their providers, whether it's financial or otherwise. I kind of say that 9pm is the new 9am, and in this, the busy lives that we all lead in this really busy world, you have to be able to engage with your members or your clients 24-7 in a manner of their choosing and at a time of their choosing. And that's where I think robo-advice really delivers in spades. Since launching our beta in to the public in December last year, uh, there have been some really interesting uh, learnings. Um, and even prior to that, when we were in private beta, millennials, um, you know, they, they do understand the, the value of the data. And they, they are also very well aware that it's their data. They don't, they don't mind it providing it to you, but um, what they expect is um, value in return. So, especially sort of, you know, taking Clover's example, um, we, over the last uh, six to eight months, we've done a lot of work in sort of uh, putting in the basic um, plumbing in place to collect all that information, uh, being really transparent with our users as to we're collecting it now. Over time, this database will become more and more valuable. Some of the early um, touch points we've created where we provide value is around um, essentially incentivizing the right kind of behavior when it comes to investments, especially long-term investments. So a lot of um, Clover users are essentially first-time investors. Uh, so that, that initial excitement of uh, funding your account seeing it getting invested and then logging in, and especially given that you can log in with a click of a button, logging in multiple times in a day to kind of see what's happening with the portfolio, that's, that can create behaviors which are at odds with what long-term investing or the right way to invest is. So um, based on how a user engages with their account um, in the early days, based on what the portfolio performance is, uh, we've, we create customized messages uh, and customized emails. And they go both ways. So uh, markets have been relatively um, uh, good in terms of uh, performance over the last uh, 12 months in sort of major asset classes. So a lot of our users sort of you know, create their account and see you know, a return over the month, which is sort of greater than what our long-term expectations and averages are. And they get quite excited. And um, you know, messaging even there and then to sort of, sort of you know, educate them that um, looking at performance over one month, six months, or 12 months, is most interesting, but it shouldn't drive your behavior. So um, if you're seeing 
your portfolio perform well, don't get too excited and don't change your plan, what we originally sort of put in plan for you and equally vice versa. Um, and this is more important for, you know, when markets are down, especially if you've just funded your account, the chances that you might have negative performance and a, and a portfolio balance, which is below what you initially started with, um, or high, uh, customized messaging at that point. So, and that's yielded, even in the short span of time, that's yielded really good results in incentivizing the right behaviors. And especially when you start with a smaller account balance in your early 20s and say, for example, you're saving for a home deposit, which is $120,000, which you want to get to in uh, five years time. In the early years, it's the contributions which will have the biggest impact on your outcomes. And that plus one or two percent return difference, if that starts driving behavior, which is not in line with that long-term plan, um, you know, that can lead, lead to be sort of a much worse outcome. So sort of creating customized messaging, creating analytics, which provide users with that information at the right time um, is, uh, is something which is already proving to be very powerful. And as we collect more and more data and we push them through uh, our machine learning algorithms, which we're putting in place, um, you know, that, that will become a lot more powerful. I think you raised some really good points there, Sahil. Um, my background is in psychology, and one of the things that really interests me about robo-advice is that it can be a delivery mechanism, as, as you point out, to nudge people at the right time towards what's in their long-term interest. And because you're, eventually you get to know their, their patterns of usage and, and what they're doing with the, the uh, robo-advisor, you can time those interventions and make sure that they're appropriate. And it reminds me of another idea, this idea of a teachable moment, that sometimes you're much more able to influence people's behaviour if you give them the right information at the right time. And I think that's something that the critics of robo-advice miss because they think it's just formulaic. And they don't understand that it's actually also learning how the customer's behaving and helping to provide that advice at the right time. So I think that that's something really exciting and, and worth acknowledging. Um, a couple of other specific things about robo-advice that I'd like to get your opinion on. Uh, one of the things that default products have is that they, they pretty much assume everybody has the same risk tolerance and the same long-term objectives and the same starting point. And uh, robo-advice doesn't do that. There's obviously a process where you get to know a little bit about your, your clients up, right up front. How do you think that changes the interaction with the client? Um, that exchange of information and creating a portfolio that suits them? I guess that, that's the key difference, right? It's, it's a challenge for uh, super funds insofar as they have to have a default product, uh, my super product, if you will, uh, an investment option to to meet, I guess, a particular investment objective and it's all comers. Whoever wants to be in that, that uh, option or lands up in that option by default gets that experience. Um, the difference with robo-advice is because of the advice component, the fact that we can provide personal financial advice. Uh, and to do that, we need to know, you know the, the client's relevant personal circumstances and, and the key driver for robo-advice, certainly in this version of robo-advice, what I call robo 1.0, it is the risk tolerance or, or risk aversion, whichever way you want to say it. So it is about finding enough about the individual. Um, and, and we put a particular emphasis on, on sort of downside risk, right? Because we totally realize that we are dealing oftentimes 
with novice investors and they may not have experienced a downturn. Uh, let's face it, a lot of our clients certainly weren't investors during the GFC. Um, their parents might have been, but they certainly weren't. So we're very cognizant that they might not have experienced a 20 or 25% drawdown. So we need to tease that out. At what point will they effectively run for the hills, cash in and, and go to, go to and, and sit in cash? The way many, many investors did right about in early 2009, just as markets bottom. So we tease that out, we ask them a sufficient amount of questions to give us a sense of which portfolio might suit them best and what their you know, risk and return trade-offs are. And by doing that, I guess not everyone gets the same portfolio. That's the whole point of robo-advice, that everyone should get a portfolio that best matches both their risk tolerance and also their investment objectives and time horizon. Yeah, the, the great thing about digital platforms like Clover is, um, especially when it comes to risk assessment, is that um, you know we not only um, learn from what um, our users tell us via the means of a risk questionnaire, but we also learn from their behavior. So we have a risk questionnaire uh, which tests for risk appetite, and as Harry mentioned, there's focus on downside risk and asking them questions sort of. Um, you know, asking the same thing a few different ways um, to um, get an understanding of what the risk appetite is, but then assessing that against the behavior we observe over time and that whether the risk tolerance they're displaying is that in line with sort of what they indicated via the means of sort of risk appetite at the start. So for example, if markets are more volatile, uh, is there a change in the contribution profile which they've indicated? Um, are they, what kind of uh, uh, articles are they reading on our blog or within our FAQ section? We have uh, an automated chat set up, so what kind of questions are we getting um, via that means? And collecting all that data and sort of putting in the instruction in place so that we can actually start assessing whether, what is the efficacy of the, the risk questionnaire? Uh, and over time, basically refining it, improving it, um, and sort of developing, you know, over the long run, essentially two scores which test against each other. One is really derived from the inputs from the user, uh, and the other is derived from sort of the observed behavior um, to, to improve the, uh, the efficiency of the model. I think another thing that we need to be cognizant of uh, with uh, robo-advice is also the level of education that, that is needed to, to support a, uh, a good robo-advice platform. Daniel, you mentioned before, you know, the, the sort of concept of, of I guess, just-in-time uh, delivery of advice. Uh, Richard Taylor himself has spoken about that. Um, the ability to deliver a piece of knowledge or uh, use that teachable moment to uh, make a client aware of what they should or should not be thinking of at that particular moment. And I think that, that's one of the, the real powerful um, potentials. I think it's, it's vastly untapped. We're on that journey, but I think we, we can all do better as, as an industry and specifically robo-advisors to give clients the information they need at the right time and in the right context to allow for better decision-making. I know one of the, the other... Um criticisms that I've heard people uh, make about robo-advice that I'd like to quickly address before we move on to other things is that the investment 
options themselves are fairly basic. They're often passive and ETF based and, and, and fairly plain vanilla. How would you answer that? Because from what I'm hearing from the conversation, the value add isn't so much on the investment side, it's more on the getting to know the client and fitting the client's needs more and meeting their objectives. Would you say it's a fair, fair summary of it or? Um, yes, certainly. And uh, even sort of, you know, on the investments um, sort of uh, question, I would say that if, uh, if I was giving advice to um, a friend or a family member um, and this wasn't digital um, and, uh, you know, given the, the typical profile of uh, a, a, a clover user we have and if they had a similar sort of circumstantial profile at a high level, and they asked me, I would still recommend the exact same portfolio um, using ETFs uh, for you know, a couple of reasons. One is essentially having worked um, at a you know, global asset consulting firm with uh, one of the biggest uh, databases on uh, active managers and their performance over time, knowing that uh, after taking fees and taxes into account, you know, active management um, or longer period of time rarely um, sort of provides value um, you know in terms of uh, manager selection uh, so that's one big reason secondly the issue of accessibility if um, if I can't access strategies uh, which I rate really highly until I you know I've built a port portfolio which is worth two hundred thousand dollars that doesn't mean that uh, I you know I shouldn't be able to invest in high quality portfolios and ETFs are a great way of accessing um, you know, really good robust asset allocation strategies um, using passive low cost and transparent um, instruments. So um, you know, in the room we'll, we'll all know that asset allocation explains you know, 90% of the variability of return. So getting that bit right early on in the life uh, rather than sort of, you know, coming into your working life and hearing from your mates about the next uh, junior mining specy and learning the hard way, um, I think there's, there's a lot of value in uh, providing robust asset allocation solutions um, early on in the life. And I think to, to sort of pick up from Sir Hill's point, I think as an industry, we in finance tend to get carried away with, with the beauty of models and, and and the complexity of our portfolios. Um, but to be fair, sometimes simplicity is all that is needed. You know, our clients do get access to the equity risk premium, but, but they're just getting it through a really simple beta harvesting product. Uh, they get access to duration, you know, they, they have cash in their portfolios. We have the basic building blocks of a diversified portfolio, and we can bring that to an individual at a far lower level than, than is traditionally available. As a former financial planner, the economics of running a financial planning firm just didn't work for, for me. I could not take on a client with less than a quarter of a million dollars. And to be fair, really, it was a half a million dollar entry ticket. Now, why should a whole cohort of Australians, irrespective of age, be denied the, the basics of sound fundamental portfolio construction 
just because they don't have $250,000 or $500,000. Why should the only uh, option available to them be a single stock or some, some hot sector that they've heard about from the Americans? I think um, we as an industry have some, some ways to catch up here. And I, and I take great heart from the likes of David Swanson, Swinson at Yale who, who has on record gone you know, on about complexity and, and the over complexity that we tend to engineer into portfolios just for the sake of it, oftentimes as, you know, as much to stroke our own egos as anything else, when oftentimes a, a simpler, more transparent solution is really all that is required. Uh, we, we certainly do feel that um, simplicity is greatly underrated in uh, finance in this day and age. One last question. What's next for Plover? What are you guys working on? The, the, the user experience for robo-advice will change away from what currently is a user sitting at a keyboard or looking at their smartphone and typing in some inputs from which we drive our, our outputs. Now we probably see that in four years time, five years time, certainly no more than 10 years time, that interaction may very well have moved beyond that to something that is more sort of chatbot driven and possibly even beyond chatbot driven to be more voice driven. So the concept of interacting with your advisor, whether it's your financial institution or your individual financial advisor through a, a mechanism like Alexa or Siri is, is well within the bounds of possibility. Obviously the issue here is that the regulatory environment needs to catch up in some sense to what is technologically capable, but we don't see any reason why in a few years time you might not put the keys down when you get home from work and say, you know, hey Alexa, how's my portfolio going this evening and are there any issues that I need to be aware of in terms of, of me hitting my goal to whatever that goal might be you know, head off for a family holiday in five years' time to Disneyland. We really see the, the emergence of, of, of that sort of technology and, and, and AI, to be fair, elements of, of artificial intelligence um, as being the next logical step for robo-advice. Well, Harry, Sahil, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with i3 Insights. We appreciate your insights into what's happening with robo-advice and uh, we wish you well in your endeavours. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for listening to the i3 Insights podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. Thank you. 